You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 115, for July 19th, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster, and on today's show, we're going to talk about cultural resources management in the mining industry. So, get out your steel toe boots and hard hat, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Richie Cruz, again, and Jenny Hildebrand. Hi. <laughs> and for the first time ever on the Archaeology Podcast Network, we've got three people, quote, in studio. So we'll see how this works. I think I've got the levels set right. Hopefully um, this doesn't all go to hell like the last podcast did. I don't know if Richie heard it. The first segment was completely lost because we recorded over it. Oh. Um, so I think I've got it nailed now, and we're getting this new Reno Collective uh, podcast studio thing dialed in. And we've actually got a new mixer coming in on Monday, which we should have had for a couple of weeks by the time you hear this. So, um, But uh, in the meantime, you know, Jenny... Uh, just came back into town, and I, I follow her on Facebook, and, and she recorded the <laughs> promo you heard at the beginning of this show. And so I said, hey, you've done some really cool things in mining and CRM, and we haven't really talked about mining as like a special topic in CRM ever, I don't think. We, we mention it occasionally, but um, it's such a huge thing out here in the West, um, west of the Rockies. Um, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear how mining is impacting CRM on the East Coast, but you never hear anybody talking about it. There's still mining out there. But anyway, we'll get into that. Um, so anyway, let me first introduce Jenny. Jenny, how's it going? Great. How are you? Good. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, uh, you know your sign. Your life story. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for that introduction, Chris. Um, I got into anthropology when I was a student in Indiana. So I went to Indiana State University and ended up getting a CRM job working on mine sites actually out in Nevada and ended up getting my master's degree from the University of Nebraska and then just kept coming back out to Nevada. The West just kept, you know, bringing me back out. Um, Wasn't the pay? It, the pay helped. Yes, the pay did help. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the majority of my archaeology experience within CRM has been working for companies doing mining archaeology. And, and how did you, I mean, how did you fall into mining? How, that seems like kind of a weird niche to follow to. There's so many other things out here too. Like what, what just kind of, did you get drawn into mining? Did you really like the whole concept of it? Or did, uh, did that just kind of how your career fell together? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I did. I mean, I, I definitely fell for it in the beginning. Um, I think some of it was luck. Mm-hmm. It just, that happened to be the first job that I got was on this really awesome, you know, eight month long excavation working on these fantastic mine sites in Nevada. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just ended up doing it and then eventually kept getting jobs that were within mining and Mm -hmm. yeah, that job led to that job that led to that job. And before you know it, you have a accumulation of 
mining archaeology under your belt? Well, I would say just from my own experience that, you know, probably the majority of historic related artifacts and features and sites that you find, at least in Nevada and the Great Basin, probably have something to do with mining. It's usually mm-hmm. mining or mm-hmm. like ranching or yeah. something, but it's usually mining, right? Yeah. And it's all interconnected. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I, I got to say, I, I follow you on the kind of falling into it too, because when I was on the East Coast, I hated historic archaeology. Like really? just hated it. What? Like I don't need one more dirty piece of pottery. There's no tin cans. <laughs> There's maybe some old cars. You know, everything just dissolves out there. Yeah. And it's gross. I'm like, show me the awesome because you know, we would dig up a site and have awesome prehistoric pottery and some really cool points and things like that. So that's what I was really interested in. And then we came out west and I was like Wait a minute. You mean we can date this can scatter or this um, this bottle collection to like a year, you know, or like a range of five years or something like that, and then yeah, and it's sitting on the surface, and you don't have to <laughs> <Yeah>. do STPs <laughs> to find where it's at. Yeah, that's the big thing right there. So I kind of I kind of rekindled my own um, or or started my own you know kind of love for historics there, just because they're they're so diagnostic, you know, and and there's so much you can tell about mining stuff too if you know what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess some of the, uh, I guess some of the types of things you could see out here. You know, if you're if you're a first time archaeologist, let's say in the Great Basin, uh, from a mining standpoint, what are what are some of the things that are more common that you might be able to see on like a an archaeological project? You know, random depressions <laughs> in the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, prospect pits, cairns. You come across a lot of mining cairns. A couple of rocks in a pile with a. Wood posts sticking out of them. That's right. Um, a lot of shafts and adits. Now, well, we have to define these terms now for people that don't understand. What, what is the difference between a shaft and an adit? A shaft is a vertical hole. An adit is a horizontal, well, Tunnel. opening into the side of a, a mountain or a hillside. Okay. Yeah. And the adits are the ones that people might be tempted to mm-hmm. go inside of. Yeah. Yeah. And why shouldn't you do that? Too. Well, there's many reasons why you shouldn't <laughs> enter into adits. Um, the first being, they're just it's if you don't know what you're doing, because they do have training where you can get certified to do this, and there are a lot of professionals that have the ability to go within adits. But for the general popula- population, yeah. um, you can come across rattlesnakes, you can come across unstable ground. Um, a lot of times, there'll just be a piece of plywood over a shaft. And you could fall into a shaft mm-hmm. inside at it. Um, sometimes there's boxes of explosive dynamite that might not have been touched for 50 years. Wow. That, you know, could be very unstable. Yeah. Um, you can get bad air. And a lot of times that's what gets people is the bad air. Because that's something that you can't see. And sometimes you don't smell it at yeah. all. Or you don't even realize it's affecting you until you're way in. Mm-hmm. The whole canary in the coal mine thing's not just a... Old fable, isn't oh, it? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And most people don't have canaries nowadays. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me, while we're, while we're talking about going in these things, uh, or rather not going in these things, um, and we didn't talk about this in the pre-show, so I don't know if you have an answer, but I've always been fascinated by sending in, um, like sending in drones to these mine shafts uh, and adits and the whole mining system and figuring out what's going on. Have you... Uh, like you were just at a conference. I Has was. Anybody talking about this kind of stuff? Actually, yeah. yeah. I had really? a couple conversations. Um, I gave a presentation at the Mining History Association. 
So there's nice. my cool. there's my plug. Um, <laughs> so check out mininghistoryassociation.com. dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and a great website. But um, we'll yeah, have was, these links in the show notes too. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had someone um, come up and ask if I'd considered using drones um, on a project that I had just worked on. Um, dealing with Chinese placer sites. Nice. And um, as you know, there are quite a few people nowadays. Drones are becoming more popular. Um, funding has become more available because the price has kind of con- come down now that more people are using mm-hmm. them. Um, so yeah, there. I I foresee drones being used quite a bit in mm-hmm. mapping underground mines and cool, dealing with that. the landscape, like the larger landscape of a mine. Yeah, like some of these historic mines, like some of these old towns in Nevada, they're just Swiss cheese underneath. And it would mm-hmm. be really cool to see not only in some cases where they, they actually were, I mean, I'm sure they were creating some sort of map as they went so mm-hmm. they could figure out what they were doing. But checking out the accuracy of that, seeing what's left, what did they leave behind, you know, when they when mm-hmm. they abandoned the mine? Um, the biggest problems I've seen, and, and I don't know if they talked about this, was is probably single signal transmission of the drone because you probably don't want to tether it because it'll get caught on something. But you also go around a corner in a hard rock mine 200 feet down a shaft mm-hmm. and you're probably going to lose the signal. So that's probably a, a really big problem unless you send them in autonomously to just map and then reach, reverse their yeah. course and come back out. So I don't know. I don't know. So now you're venturing into areas that I am <laughs> <laughs> not qualified right. to discuss on. That's right. I don't think we are either. So. I'm sure there's some archaeology drone expert oh that we God. can bring in on this conversation. Yeah. No, it's probably not an archaeology one yet. Um, it probably had to be specific to mining would be my guess. Yeah. It's something we'll look into. I am talking to the people at Archaerial for a uh, for an Archaeotech podcast, so maybe we'll have to bring that up. All right. Mm. So anyway, you mentioned a term a little while ago, and I want to see if we can help define some of these others, because I know when I got into the Great Basin, people have thrown around all these terms, especially for mines and stuff. And I'm like, I had to go look it up because I didn't want to sound stupid when I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't want people here on this podcast to do that either. Uh, but you mentioned placer mining. Yes. What is placer mining? Ooh. Placer mining is alluvial mining. And most of the time you come across placer mining, it's in a valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a lot that are, they're very close together. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they could be, you know, 20 to 40 feet deep. Um, so it's using water to mine. Okay. Um, for the most part, in the most general sense. Using water to kind of separate the materials? Yeah. You know, the minerals from the rock? Yeah. So you can like get a, um, you know, a bucket full of ore, mm-hmm. dump it into a rocker, and you can use water to separate out True. the larger from the smaller. It, is gold panning essentially miniature placer mining? Yeah. Because it's still using yeah. water, right? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one I mean, other. There's multiple variations of size sure. with placer yeah. mining, um, but a lot of sites in Nevada you can come across Chinese placer mining sites, oh, nice. which are really interesting too. Okay. Because there's certain <laughs> techniques that you can use. Right. When doing placer mining. What uh, What other types of mining can you come across here in Nevada? Oh gosh, there's actually. <laughs> <laughs> when I started getting into it, I I was. Um, impressed by how many different variations yeah. and types of mining you have in Nevada. But you've got hard rock mining, you've got your gold mining, your silver mining. Um, I worked on a perlite mine. Perlite? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I never really worked or heard of perlite for the most part, but yeah. it's basically those little white balls and when you pot plants. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, perlite. And yeah. it's a really soft uh, material. So. Hmm. Nice. Aside from minerals, like what types of mining can you find? You know, because we have the 
We have the shafts and adits we've mentioned. We've seen big open pit mines. Um, there's the plaster mining you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like what other, I guess if you're trying to record these things as an archaeologist and the first thing you have to say on your on your site form, let's say, for example, is this was a blank mine, not a gold mine or a silver mine, but this was a plaster mine. This was a this type of mine. Do they do they have like what uh, any other special terms? Am I am I totally way off base here? Sorry to think about what we're talking about. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've I've have a whole, whole bunch of old timey mining mining books at home, and it's like mm-hmm. there's a million types of adits and everything, but yeah. nothing we use. I guess you're right. Yeah. I guess then the bigger types of things I would see is basically, um, you know, the subsurface and surface mining. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. The big two major divisions. And scale. Yeah. You can have small scale mining, which is just one guy out who's uh, yeah. prospecting, or you can have you know large scale. Mining operations that go, you know, from the mid 1800s all the way to today. Right. Yeah. yeah. They just keep digging. So I guess what you're asking is like, what when you're on the ground, what are you looking for? Am I wrong? Uh, so what more like what those things are called? But yeah, let's talk about that though, because um, we're kind of leading into that. So yeah. you're out on you're out on survey in the Great Basin for the first time. What are some <laughs> uh, what are some signs that you're seeing mining activity? We kind of alluded to it in the beginning. But what do these things look like? We mentioned pits and and cairns and stuff like that. But what are we, what do these features look like? I mean, some people might think we're looking for a massive hole in the ground, or we're looking for a head frame, or we're yeah. looking for something like mm-hmm. that. But obviously, uh, that's those aren't the only signs of mining. Those are the obvious signs of mining. But what are some of the other signs, and what what could they look like? Well, the big picture. So you have human beings who are altering the landscape. I was gonna say screwing up. Yeah. That's an. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like when I was doing my field school, I was in, I was helping defining a mining district, and they put placers every damn where in the whole valley. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, you couldn't walk around at night without a headlamp. Yeah, yeah, could be pretty dangerous, right? Pretty Especially when out. you're drunk. But I mean, for the most part, um, just turned up earth. Mm-hmm. You can get uh, trenching because a lot of times mm. people will go back on historic mines and they'll rework. The waste rock piles. Right. Um, so a lot of times, too, big tailings piles, waste rock piles. So they're just basically large piles of dirt, essentially, mm-hmm. that's taken out of the ground. Um, a lot of times, too, you'll come across not only the, the industrial side of it, like, you know, the machinery parts and the actual part of the mine, but you'll come across domestic artifacts like cans and milk cans and beer cans and you know, mm-hmm. ceramic plates and um, the more human side of it. Yeah, because back in the day, these places were pretty remote. Yeah. And now we can probably drive to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, they had to stay out there for who knows how long. And yeah, a lot there. of people lived, you yeah. know, that's why you find all those really awesome ghost towns that are right next to mine, <laughs> old mining operations. Yeah. Well, one thing I always liked is you can you can often tell the prosperity of a mine, not just by its size, because sometimes it, the, the mine's physical expression on the surface, especially if it's shafts and things, might not be visibly prosperous with size. You might just have a few buildings and stuff, but you look at the you look at the tin can assemblage that might be there and you start seeing like Ghirardelli chocolate and some other stuff and it might be like oh, champagne bottles, are... right. and oysters, <laughs> Harrington's. Yeah, yeah. They were making some money out at that mine. Yeah. Oh, nice. We should definitely you should definitely get used to um identifying milk cans. Oh my god. And coffee cans. Yeah. <laughs> Those are good for identifying dates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Which is neat when you can come across a site and kind of tell what year or, you know, what range of years. Mm-hmm. 
Unless uh, someone is trying to ask you off the top of your head, what is a type 9 milk can and what's their, what are oh its dimensions, God. which has happened to me before. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't have my cheat sheet. That's the kind of information I keep in my iPad, not in my head. <laughs> That's yeah. a 208 by 208 from 1946. That's no. <laughs> probably right. Um, you know, another way that's really, another thing that's cool about these historic mines is, um, and maybe you can, I don't know how much you know about this, but maybe talk about it a little bit. I know there was a time period in the early, I want to say early 1900s, and I might be wrong on this, where there was like a law or regulation that they had to come out and prove their claim, I think they called it. So that's why we have a lot of prospect pits. If there was no activity on the claim for a certain period of time, then you lost it. Somebody else could come and just take it over, which is why sometimes there's, like we worked, uh, I worked with a company down in Tonopah and there was a whole mining district down there, but away from the real mining where we had actual structures and head frames and shafts and mountains and things like that, back down in the valley where the edges of these claims were, there were just prospect pits and cairns because all they were doing, they would put up a cairn and a pile of rocks with a post. And sometimes the mining papers are inside, like the claim papers are inside the mm-hmm. little tobacco tin. Yeah. Uh, and then a shallow pit. And you're like, you're like on a plane. What the hell are you going to find here? They're not going to find anything. They dug that shallow pit so they could show that they were there, that there was activity on the mine. Have you heard about that? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, yeah you do have to, there there are time constraints. Yeah. Um, and you do have to keep working on things. I mean, there's a whole, you can get a whole book on mining laws, you know, within Nevada and within the United States. It's really fascinating. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've been into that room in, uh, uh, where is it in like the city hall in Goldfield or something where they've got all those claim books? Have you ever seen that? We did some research back there one time. I don't want to know. I don't know if it's a city hall. Maybe it's a museum, but it's in Goldfield. Okay. And they've just got these ridiculously old, massive tomes that you just go look at the old claims and stuff in. It's just crazy. Yeah. um, All right. Well, we're pretty close to a break, so let's go ahead and take that now. And then uh, when we come back, we'll grill Jenny on some more questions about it. Oh, goodness. Hey everyone, here's a new program from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, BC. SFU Archaeology's professional HRM graduate program exists to train the next generation of leaders in the diverse and dynamic CRM industry. Taught by and for CRM professionals, each of their four online courses delves into a key dimension of CRM, law and policy, ethics and practice, business management, and research design and methods. The MA thesis requirements meet RPA standards and your interest in unlimited career advancement. Check them out online at SFU HRM Archaeology. Spots are filling up for next fall's cohort, so apply today. All right, we're back. So as we mentioned at the beginning, um, Jenny, you went to the Mining History Association Conference in Anchorage? Yes, or Fairbanks. 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 Yeah, you went through Alaska. Anchorage. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, was, I was following the journey on your, uh, your <laughs> Facebook page. Um, so first, tell us a little bit about the Mining History Association. Like, what is it? What is a conference? What do I see if I'm going to go there? Well, what you're going to see. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a loaded question. I know. Um, so every year, the Mining History Association has a conference, and it's usually, um, you know, like the title, it's associated with a historic mining place or where mm-hmm. mining has occurred. Um, so this year it was in Alaska, um, and it focused on all of the mining history and mines around Fairbanks. Um, And the cool thing about the Mining History Association is it's made up not only of archaeologists, but you've got historians, you have retired miners, you have geologists, you have, you know, just 
people who happen to like mining history, yeah. um, who have never worked in the industry. Um, so it's a really good mix of all of these different types of um, career paths coming together and just having fun. And um, a couple days out of the conference, um, a bunch of tours are set up. So mm. we went to an underground mine this time and got to go inside and we went to um, a permafrost tunnel nice. and had a tour from this awesome Russian guy named Misha. Um, <laughs> so you get to do a lot of things that you normally wouldn't get to do. Um, and of course, there's conference papers um, and it's a great net networking tool. We've got people um, from all over. I just uh, got an email from a mining guy in Australia. Nice. So it's an international organization um, and it's 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 a really if you're interested in mining history, it's a really great organization. They've got a really um, detailed and very well kept um, website mm -hmm. that has um, terminology, oh, wow. mining terminology that you can look up. It's got great resources, great library, pictures from like every past conference. Nice. Um, next year, it's going to be in Deadwood. So, oh, cool. Yeah. And cool. it was in Telluride the year before, Virginia City the year before that. So oh. for the most part, it's within um, the West because that's where the majority of mining takes place. Um, but it's also sometimes international. Yeah. And um, every now and then we get back to the East Coast. Um, we're going to be up in Michigan working on iron mining. Oh, yeah. I've I got believe. a lot of family that have done that. Yeah. So and then coal mining's come into discussion and... So yeah, it's just it includes anything that has to do with mining history. Cool. That's a brief story. I remember going back when I was like ten years old back to Upper Michigan to visit family. Um, we took like a week and a half long trip back there, and I had an uncle or maybe even great uncle that worked. He was a foreman at an iron ore mine up in uh, up near Lake Superior somewhere. Yeah, wow. and uh, we had just gotten these wrist rocket slingshots <laughs> like for the summer or something like that. My parents got us these things. And he gave us because I guess they're they they transport the ore after it's um uh they transport the iron in these little pellets I guess after it's refined or something somewhere they they bring it down in these little pellets and then they put those into big train cars and then they run the train cars to wherever they need to go. Well, these pellets just fall off the sides of the cars because it's just dumped on top of there. So then they go over the tracks periodically with this massive electromagnet and it picks up all these iron pellets and then they take those <laughs> and then they. Get them back in the cars eventually, and well, then that's kind of neat. Yeah. yeah. Well, he gave us these coffee cans of iron, like like marble sized iron pellets to shoot with our uh, our slingshots. That was the worst thing. That sounds could safe. Ever have done? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know how many windows we broke. Sounds like and, good parenting. Oh my god, it was so terrible. <laughs> anyway, um, you gave a paper up at that conference. I did. So, did you have you done? Was it? Was the I guess the conference probably wasn't totally focused in Alaska unless your paper was something for up in Alaska or did you just present something else? What did you? I mean, they about? had symposiums where it was focused on Alaska and focused mm -hmm. on you know the Fairbanks area and history of Fairbanks. Um, but yeah, there was presentations, um, some that just dealt with um, you know a, a certain topic, yeah. and then you know it, it didn't really matter geographically, right? You know, just whatever was applicable to that topic. Okay. But so there's a good wide range of you know so i don't presentations. know if it's, sometimes i know archaeology papers can be sensitive with locations and clients and like that are you able to mention what your paper was about yeah okay we'll go with that um <laughs> be as generic as you want i will because <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to be generic when you're talking about you know 
archaeological sites and where they're located. That's um, right. We don't want any of that on the podcast. Yeah. But yeah, it was a historic Chinese placer mining site. Um, okay. And it included, uh, you know, 190 some shafts. Mm. Um, and the whole point of, of recording the, the project was it was a safety issue. Mm-hmm. So um, the, pro- the site was going to be fenced up, okay. you know, to keep it safe for the public. So there needed to be a cultural assessment to make sure that the fence wouldn't affect the site because it was already an eligible site. Hmm. Um, so that's the gist of it. That's the gist of it? Yeah. <laughs> and it had an associated Chinese town site, um, a Joss house. There was yeah. about 14 structures that were out there. Um, at one point um, in the 80s, they went back and did some um, some work um, some modern work was done out there. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, a pit was put in, um, and they came across some uh, Chinese opium tins. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a pretty interesting Chinese site. Do all, because um, I've recorded and I've, I've I've participated in recording, and, and Richie has too, um, of uh, probably a lot of mining complexes <laughs> around Nevada. <laughs> but I guess they're everywhere. They're yes. Everywhere. If everywhere. you work in Nevada, you will yeah. you will have to record a mine site, whether That's you right. want to or not. And I guess, um, I guess since I've owned my own company and been at like the PI level, I haven't actually recorded that many. Um, I've been doing other things and working in other places like California, things like that. So, um, but before that, I was more of a team member on the recording of these things. So I wasn't always privy to the evaluation of these things. Um, I like how you use the word privy. I know, right? I know. We love privies. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Double entendre. What, uh. What makes one of these sites eligible? Because you said this site was uh, Chinese plaster mine, you know, is eligible uh, for listing on the National Historic Register, National Register of Historic Places. Recommended as eligible. Recommended yeah. as eligible, yeah. right? So, yeah, because these things hardly ever make it to the register. Yeah. Who's going to do that paperwork, right? Um, but uh, I mean, are all mining complexes in Nevada eligible because they're if they have like structures and things like that? Is that what makes them eligible, or does there have to be a historical connection to it? What what makes these things eligible do you think that's a really interesting question and it's also a big can of worms kind of question right um because there's different criteria that can make something eligible um but you also have to take into account things like integrity right you know what's the the current um state state yeah state of preservation um, you know, has a lot of things been moved? Is everything in context? What's the feeling? Take into account things like landscape. That's a tough question because, like we mentioned before, there could be a really small. Sur- uh, we, we saw mines where there were really saw small um, surface ex- surface expressions because they were taking the material. There weren't even like I mean I've seen shafts and stuff where there's just a shaft and there's no tailings or anything. Mm-hmm. There might be a little bit where they like pre-excavated the shaft kind of thing, yeah. but then all the material was carted off and processed somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So it didn't look like a lot of activity was happening right there. But the network of tunnels underneath could have a high state of preservation. Yeah, <laughs> or Mark Twain could have excavated that <laughs> shaft, right? And then you have you know the connection with a very important yeah. historical figure. I mean, yeah. obviously that there's. <laughs> It's a far <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He he had his hand in some of those though. Yeah. He? he stayed yeah. in Virginia City for quite a while. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of it too is, you know, what information can you get out of the mine site that you're working yeah. on or the archaeological site that you're on? Okay. That's a, it's always been a sticky problem for me because I, I have seen some recommended as either ineligible or um 
maybe unevaluated or something like that. I think unevaluated would probably be a more apt thing to say, especially if you've got a subsurface component that you have no way mm-hmm. of checking out, you know, because that could be a pretty amazing thing down there. True. Um, I'm just thinking about, too, like I've worked on a couple uh, just a couple weeks ago on on a, a modern mine site mm-hmm. from a massive company. And I know just from talking to some of the people there, I mean, these guys go down into these uh, subsurface areas and there's you know, they're like buildings. You feel like you're in a building, you know, like there's big rooms down there. They eat mm-hmm. lunch down there. Their changing rooms are down there and they've got they've got the dirty shafts that you're probably used to. But they've also got well lit, nice areas. And I'm thinking, man, 500 years from now, we see one of these things. I mean, that's a whole crazy site down there. Ooh. And uh, I don't know how they're going to I don't know how they. Well, uh, b- bomb shelters. Yeah. Well, they fallout go. shelters. Yeah, that's what Ooh. it's going to be. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of. Different things you new, can use new that for. Living areas. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> the cool thing is, though, um, a lot of historic mines that have really interesting underground workings mm-hmm. have really cool old maps associated with them that yeah. you can get. Um, so sometimes you can see, you know, um, the, the, shaft network. the worm network underneath. Yeah. Cool. In a lot of historic maps. So. That's really neat. Historic <laughs> research is is going to tell you the big chunk of. You know, you have what you see on the ground, but most of that's going to be supported yeah. with historic documents. Okay. Cool. Well, let's... Um, what do you uh, think, Richie? You <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking about all the structures. I don't know. You just brought up, in my mind, like the ore bins and the head frames and the workshops mm-hmm. and the blacksmith stuff that you can still find. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Blacksmiths yeah. and, and head frames are, are two very common... Right things and those are kind of the coolest and most fun part of recording a site yeah, yeah. like it's the anvils intact like blacksmith workshop yeah. or you know because you know head frames are such a huge part of the landscape you can see them from far away and mm-hmm. i was also thinking about job security 500 years from now someone's like excavating all the way down <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh that'd take you forever i know see? <laughs> um you know what uh I, another thing I noticed too, uh, to to keep in mind on mine sites too, is that a lot of these areas, they, there's a lot of wood involved and, and resources and things like mm-hmm. that, just to keep it going with the buildings and the you know the support structures and stuff. Um, which is another thing that can make these old shafts and adits uh, dangerous because a lot of that stuff was cannibalized for True. other projects, right? Yeah. So if they had the ability to remove all these things and use it somewhere else, that might be another reason why there isn't a large surface expression. You know, because it's all just been taken away. I mean, how many mm-hmm. times have we seen a site where it's just, you know, like a rock outline of where a building used to be mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. with maybe some window glass? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're in the middle of nowhere, you're going to reuse, yeah. you know, that shack that isn't being used anymore. You're right. going to use that for firewood or, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. scrap or metal or another building. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's places down... Um, uh, there was that whole town down near Beatty. Didn't we work down there, Richie, where they moved the entire town? Um, it was out near where we were working for that unnamed company. Oh, uh, Bullfrog? No, it was near there, though, but I wasn't on that project. But it was another thing. I can't remember what it was, but they moved the entire town. Like, they just picked up – it was a small town that was built up around a mining community. Mm-hmm. And the boom was gone for whatever reason. And they just picked it up and moved to, moved the buildings. Mm-hmm. So that can happen as well. I mean, there's places where, you know, there's been 30,000, 50,000 people that once resided oh, there. Yeah. And you go – crazy today and you literally do not see anything (laughs) well no not even that you can go and you can't there's no remnants that a town used to exist there oh like rawhide 
Rawhide or yeah, Rawhide might be what I yeah. Um, and then Rhyolite, Rhyolite, Nevada, out near uh, Death Valley. That place is crazy. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of yeah. Well, in a lot of these small towns, um, you know, that are in Nevada that are on the highways and stuff. I mean, even like Elko. I was just in Elko last week, and you know, Elko ten years ago even wasn't Elko today. You mm-hmm. know, Elko's got like three sushi places. I had some decent sushi in Elko. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of surprised. And it was right next to a hipster bistro that I had lunch at. You know, what times, the hell? Times are changing. <laughs> oh, there's going to be a Tesla dealership there before there's one here in Reno, I think. So you never know. You never know. Probably not, though, because Teslas require, uh, you know, they're electric and mining just wants you to use coal and things like that. So, you know, not here in Nevada, but <laughs> anyway, um, I'm getting off track. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, we mentioned doing this at the beginning. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, uh, the, some of the archaeological aspects of mining. Um, a little bit more about uh, at working as an archaeologist out here. Uh, first off, let's get out of the way. What do you need to do to work on a mine site in Nevada? You need to take a class. You need to get certified. Um, yeah. Proper equipment talk about that a little bit first you got to get hired on in a company that (laughs) has you know a a, that has work that's gonna allow you the ability to right yeah but that's the obvious first question first answer um normally um most companies and is it a law i think it's a law you have to take imsha training Mm -hmm. which is the mine health and safety mine safety mine mine safety yeah yeah. Yeah, that one. So, yeah, that <laughs> one. Yeah. And that just, you know, basically lets you know how to not die on a mine site. Right. It's kind of a generalized common sense. Here's all the things you need to know yeah. in order to be on a mine site and to be safe and go home at the end of the day. And that there is some there is some good stuff. I want to talk about MSHA real quick because M- Richie just took his MSHA research. Oh, so it's fresh on your mind. Fresh on his mind. I took nice. mine about a month and a half ago. Because um, <laughs> we're both going to work on a mine in a, in a couple mm-hmm. weeks. So, But the mine we're going to work on, once we get to where we're going, we're not going to see a lot of mining activity, right? Yeah, you're never around the active. No. It's just kind of more of a, you know, CYA and... Right. However, that's not always the case, which is why you need to pay attention in MSHA sometimes. The mine I was on last week... To and from where we were going um, every day, and then sometimes during the day, because we were kind of on a a, a linear uh, project across this mine, so we had to get on different areas. But we were right up in the active mine. I mean, I was sitting. Yeah, sometimes two you're driving around like the 410 yeah. haul trucks. Yeah, I mean, I I had my truck between the two haul trucks. Ooh. It's left hand drive. If you forget mm-hmm. that when you turn onto the haul road, you're going to get smashed. Yeah. And uh, and then we had a radio, so we had to call to pass different vehicles and stuff and it's a whole procedure and if mm-hmm. you don't if you don't do it right i mean it could really mean your your safety mm-hmm. so um so i mean I'm, i ha- actually had to take haswapper yeah for my last job that and, i had and what's, and what's haswapper for those that don't know oh <laughs> okay so that's a little on spot health <laughs> what do you learn in haswapper let's not google worry about it. the definition let's just say someone google yeah. haswapper real quick um Hazardous things? So, yeah, he went, he went, it's, yeah, it's about hazardous things. I don't even know how to spell Haswapper. Oh, there it is. Has, hazardous Waste Operations and Emergency Response. How could you not remember that? <laughs> Seriously. Um, Shame on me. So you gotta t- I've never had to take Haswapper training. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really applicable. I'm not surprised that... I, I, I'm surprised that more archaeologists don't take Haswapper, even if, you know, even if it's not just on their own choice. Right. Um, 
if you're working on a mine site, a lot of times you'll see cyanide bins. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, environmentally questionable uh, materials that you might not know. What is that oozing thing coming out of that tin over there? Oh, listen, that's asbestos. Or Listen, pro tip, if it's oozing, don't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, archaeologists in Nevada and within the Great Basin yeah. work on mercury mines a lot. Mm-hmm. If you aren't familiar with the process of recording a mercury retort, Haswapper kind of helps you realize, you know, what not mm-hmm. to touch. Do I need to wear a Tyvek suit for this type of survey? Right. You know, and then you're kind of getting kind of more into the environmental yeah. side of archaeology, which I think archaeologists see more than they know they see. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But Haswapper's a good one. And if OSHA you, as well. If you smell almonds, isn't that like a kind of what cyanide smells like sometimes? Yeah. I thought, I think I was told that. I don't know. If you smell anything weird, I've heard that saying. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not. I didn't really smell almonds, yeah. but generally, if it's powdery or oozing or in stick form, um, don't touch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, out of mine. Yeah, so, you know, and you can really get. In, Richie's probably one of the smarter people I see. He wears gloves. I don't care what temperature it is. I don't care what he's doing. That's good. We're, we're working below sea level in the in the southern deserts near Mexico, and Richie's wearing gloves. Um, well, crazy, crazy man, but smart. Well, I mean, we eat food, we drink water, we do all yeah. this stuff in the field, and it's not yeah. like you have access to, yeah. you know, Hand a sanitizer. sink. Yeah. Well, it's like um, we were working out, what was it, Battle Mountain? Yeah. And um, someone dropped their chip on the ground, and it's very alkali, and he was out to pick it up and eat it. <laughs> Five-second rule. <laughs> <Yeah>. Five-second rule. <laughs> My God. I mean, That's a lot of it's common sense, sense, but if you don't have the training, and if you don't have yeah. the, I mean, sometimes you just don't think about stuff like that right well i mean like um there was once a project where someone said hey don't touch that that's dynamite and then <laughs> the new guy in the crew immediately goes over it opens up the um whatever it was in yeah oh that's horrible yeah that's bad that yeah happens. which is why don't he probably is dynamite no dynamite because there's professionals that actually get called in yeah, yeah. to detonate that stuff oh you know about that yeah. chris wouldn't you oh, yeah yeah oh yeah For sure All right, well, we're at our second break, so let's take a break real quick, and then we'll come back in the third segment and talk about more ways you can die in Nevada. This episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast is made possible by Codify Incorporated. Codify is a California benefit corporation that can help you with your digital archaeological needs. Visit codify.com today to find out how Codify can help you go paperless in 2017. That's www.codify.com. Now back to the show. All right, so we're back for segment three, uh, the final segment. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, we'd started talking, you know, I, I kind of, this is, the audience for this show is obviously um, mostly CRM archaeologists. So, uh, and this is for people, you know, I'm kind of intending this a little bit for people that don't know anything about mining and for people that want to maybe come work in the Great Basin at some point, or maybe, you know, it's the beginning of the field season and kind of getting into the middle by the time this has come out. Uh, I guess July is kind of the middle, first third maybe, mm-hmm. depending on where you're working. Um and I'll, I'll give one slight pro tip uh, that we kind of alluded to before, M-Shaw class. I've seen a fair number of job postings where, especially when you're hot and heavy in the middle of the field season, where it lists M-Shaw as a requirement. Mm-hmm. And they might not want to pay to send you to M-Shaw class, right? So if you come with an M-Shaw certification to your job, you're a step ahead of people who didn't. It mm-hmm. might be the thing that pushes you over the top. You yeah. can pay to go take an MSHA class. If you're not current, you can take the free refresher in Carson City, Nevada. Um, it's eight hours and it's free and you just have to book your time like two months ahead of time. But um, 
or a month maybe. Uh, but if you can find a place to get an MSHA class, you can do that ahead of time without mm -hmm. going to your company first. And then, because that almost got my wife and I out of our first company, we were coming from the East Coast. We didn't even know what MSHA stood for, or had never heard of it before in our lives. Mm -hmm. But the first thing they did was send us to MSHA because we needed it to work on the project. Yeah. So. I mean, most com every company I've ever worked for has paid for my yeah. MSHA training. The issue is, is when you, um, when you get laid off or you move to a different yeah. state or a different, like you said, moving, you know, mm -hmm. or if you just move to a different company, if you have periods of unemployment or vacation time and you let it lapse, mm -hmm. then you have to, that it's harder to retake the full 24 hours if you let it lapse versus right. just the eight hour refresher. Right. And if you want to know a secret tip that I know works in Nevada, <laughs> send me an email and I'll let you know because I won't say it on the air. But anyway, um, <laughs> now you just ruined it. I know. Uh, let's uh, so let's talk. I have no a little, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> find out let's talk a little bit more about safety. What are some? What is some equipment that you should probably own that your company might not provide you if you're going to get working on a mine site here in Nevada? Steel-toed boots <laughs> or composite boots. Yeah, comfortable steel-toed boots. You could be putting ten miles a day on these things. Mm -hmm. So don't. Yeah. You know the the traditional work steel toe boots that i mean they might just not be they just might not be good for hiking they have yeah. they make i have they red do wing make hiking good boots. they make good hiking boots that are steel toed yeah. yeah and i have red wing composite oh yeah boots yeah and those are definitely harder like we were talking about yeah. earlier they're definitely harder to walk in yeah um because those are the like the whole flank of the shoe right yeah is composite there's also um and i haven't personally noticed much of a difference here um and i've worked in the in the cold and steel toe boots, but I've heard uh, some mines, or maybe all of them now, will allow the um, uh, what is it like a like a carbon fiber almost toe mm -hmm. instead of steel? Yeah, it's just like really that. hard plastic. Yeah, but they'll allow that uh, through MSHA. And I've heard, and I don't know if this is anecdotal or whatever, but that the difference, the major difference when you're working in really cold weather, like when you're coming up to winter here in Nevada, is that the steel in steel toe can get super freaking cold mm -hmm. and really? really freeze your toes off, mm -hmm. whereas the other stuff obviously doesn't get as cold. Interesting. So that might be something to think about. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I've got separate boots for winter that have steel toes in them. Yeah. Muck boots. Yeah. And you've never had frozen feet? No, oh, they're muck boots. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, so what else What else should you get for personal protective equipment? PPE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hard hats. Hard hats. And make sure you get the ones that require for the project, because I was once on a crazy project where this company decided that you needed foam-lined hard hats? Foam-lined? Wow. Yeah, this is what I was working on in a very controversial pipeline that mm -hmm. everyone hated. Not the... Yeah. Wait, I was about to say the name. Yeah. <laughs> the actual yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> um, Most places, though, will provide you with hard hats, right? I've will. never had to provide my own. So along with hard hats, though, is a, is a vest, which also might be provided mm -hmm. for you. But I'll give another tip. <laughs> yes. You're, you're going to say it. Go ahead, Jenny. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know if I no, was going to say. No, just say what you were going to say because I see the look on your face. I was going to say get your own vest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, one that's comfortable, one that fits you. Yeah. And, you know, just you're you're responsible for your own safety. Mm -hmm. And even though companies provide you with things, it's, it, you know, especially in hunting season. I've worked on projects that had nothing to do with mines. Yeah. But it's hunting season. Like back in Indiana and Kentucky. Right. Yeah, me too. And you want to have one even if it's not required because yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's just good to be visible. 
Plus, not even just in hunting season, which is a good tip. Um, working back east, especially, I always I've always worn a vest. Mm-hmm. Always worn a vest. Um, even if you're working in like a forested area, it might be easier to actually see your crew members. Yeah. you know, if they're wearing mm-hmm. a vest, and and even out here in Nevada. Um, like for example, just a few weeks ago, I was out on a project and the person I was with, you know, she was, uh, she was a ways away cause we were separated, but the only reason I could, we could see each other. I mean, on the dot, the small dot on the you horizon, were glowing. You were glowing orange on the green background. Right. And I, sh- it should be a brown background, but not the, not the winter and spring we've had here. Um, so yeah, a vest is a good thing to buy because, uh, I mean, first off, you'll get one that fits. Yeah. You'll mm-hmm. get one that you like. You will get you won't have something too Some small. Some have or... really cool pockets that you can that fit yeah. perfectly for the right in the reins. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can have like pencil slots or and... tablets because it's 2017. True. I've got one that fits my iPad Mini. Oh, right down in. Well, aren't you fancy? <laughs> I actually, um, I actually turned a hunting vest into a safety vest because they yeah. sell the um striping separately. Yeah, I've seen yours. Huh. Yeah, because yeah. that's another thing you can't. Uh, some mines are really particular about the color and the striping, the the mm-hmm. reflective striping on your vest. I had one that was orange, but didn't have um, the right reflective striping on it. Mm-hmm. And then I had an old crappy vest. I think I had somebody gave it to me for like bicycling or something out in Nevada, and I never actually wore it for bicycling. But I actually cut the striping off of that and sewed it onto my nice vest that I liked because I really liked that vest. And I still got it. It's the one I still wear, oh. um, and it's good enough for the mines. Because, um, yeah, sometimes different colors will signify this is a mine owner or a mine operator yeah. or a visitor. Uh, well, some, are just, mine or... some are just real particular about orange versus yellow, too. They just have a safety policy that says you're going to wear yellow, not orange, or yeah. you're going to wear orange, not yellow. I don't know if MSHA oh. has a. When in Rome. I guess, yeah. Do whatever you got to do. And some some companies, you might not be able to wear your own vest because they're if you're out monitoring, they have a special vest. They might, it, like, especially if you're. Um, like a project manager, you're a full-time employee. They might have one branded with their stuff on the back and send mm-hmm. you out to monitor. Oh, or the company like that. logo. The company logo, yeah. yeah, something like that. So, but that will likely be your vest, and nobody else is going to wear that. What we're talking about is you're a field tech on a on a crew, and they just open the Rubbermaid bin mm-hmm. that wafts fumes out when they open mm-hmm. the vest bin, and it's just like never been washed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like five bucks, and they don't yeah. take up much space in your pack. You can get a brand yeah. new, even that meshing. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just throw one in your in your pack. Right. The thing I was going to mention about hard hats is they they come in uh, all sorts of sizes and shapes and yeah. different things and uh, but most of the ones except for the one Richie was talking about the weird foam insert most of them have this like hanging um, insert inside so the hard hat kind of sits off of your head well that. What is that called, that piece inside? It's like um, a suspension harness. Yeah, almost. the suspension, you're right. So the little suspension framework, you can actually buy that separately. So if you want to have your own sweaty suspension thing versus somebody else's, you can use the company's hard hat, just snap your little suspension huh. thing inside of it. You yeah. know. I didn't know you can talk this long about hard hats. I know, right? You can go all day. Well, then there's the fancy cowboy hat ones you see on mine. I've got yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, of course yeah. you do. I know. <laughs> I'm you're not wearing it now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and sometimes, too, those are only good for two years. Yeah. They have a limit. Yeah, because the hard hats, uh, especially really? us. Because mm-hmm. I once worked on a project where I collected stickers from like yeah. bananas and stuff, and it was tacky, and I I don't do it anymore. But, <laughs> what? Uh, this was newbie me. But anyways, stuck stickers onto it, yeah. and then obviously it, that wasn't um, the proper and professional thing to do. So Maybe not. What? Yeah. yeah. 
somebody call you out on it or yeah so yeah. just don't put stickers on your hard hats either right. other than the approved some, ones uh, yeah other than approved yeah some mines will give you a sticker saying you went through their training uh-huh those yeah, are fine put that on. yeah but that's also i think that's also a backhanded way of saying oh you did this training three years ago your hard hat's invalid now hmm. yeah it's because there's sometimes they're dated i know some of the barrack ones are punched out with the date oh they are yeah the barrack safety stuff my hard hat still has a like one from like five years ago <laughs> but the one of the ways you can tell your hard hat's good or not is um go into a really dark room and shine uh like if you're in your hotel room pull the lampshade off and stick a light inside of it if you can see little cracks and things coming out of your hard hat um like huh. hairline cracks that probably means if something lands on you or something like that your hard hat might just shatter i did not know that yeah that's actually wow. a good thing because it's plastic and we're out in the bright sunlight at high altitude with a lot of UV radiation and UV breaks down plastic. Everybody's seen a plastic bottle or something that's been yeah. sitting in the mm-hmm. outside. It's no different than your hard hat. And it will break down and then shatter like an eggshell if something hits it and then go right through to your skull. Yeah, but some of those stickers are like a mark of honor. I know. Well, take your hard hat, put it on the wall next to your line of hard hats for your career. <laughs> buy I've only had to one. use the hard There's only been two times in my career where I've gone, ooh, thank God I had a hard hat on. Yeah. Have you guys had any of those experiences? Most of the time, the only experience that I've had where I was glad I did that is because I, I hit something with my head because the hard hat was on. <laughs> like, it was too high. <laughs> like walking through the trees and you right. run into yeah. a branch. <laughs> I think the only piece of equipment I was glad I had when I had an accident was my um was my um hydration bladder. Yeah? Oh. I fell off a rock and came down on a very pointy boulder. Ouch. Right on it. Man. Did it puncture it? Yeah, but it didn't puncture your back. No. Nice. And I was at a radio range. Oh, my God. I've hit my head plenty of times with a biking helmet on as I've been crashed or hit by cars and things like that, but never my hard hat. Hmm. We're just not often in areas where we really need the hard hat, although we're on mine property, so we have to wear mm-hmm. it. You know, we're always out in areas before they're mining. So I've never been... Have you? I mean, have you? You said you had, right? Yeah, well... The one time, the first time where I was happy that I wore a hard hat was I was excavating and this was on a mine site um, mm-hmm. and there was someone that was, um, that had their shovel and they were digging next to me and they turned around and the <laughs> the back end of the, sho- of the um, shovel yeah. just like smacked me right nice. in the center of my head Ooh. and it made like a ting on my hard hat. <laughs> I was like, Ooh, good thing I was wearing that. Nice. Nice. Yep. Second time. Second time, I was walking through uh, through the woods, and you know how like when you walk through the woods and you move trees and branches, yeah. and then they like smack back. Yeah, I had a big branch smack back and hit Ouch. my hard hat, knocked it off. Oh, good thing you're wearing a hard hat. Yeah, yeah, they're okay. good. All right, well, uh, Oof. that's it for the hard hat show. <laughs> um, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Do we next have any week. hard hat jokes or oh, hard what? hat songs? <laughs> well, just to entice the oh listener, God. what are we going to talk about next week on This Week in Hard Hats? What are we? <laughs> 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 um, this Week in Hard Hats, uh, cowboy hard hats. That's what I think we should go to because there's such variation. But I see those brown pink ones. ones. Yeah, oh, pink oh. ones. You see those very, very like yeah. girly hard hats. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. Variation. Wait, but the brown ones, aren't those the lightweight ones? Yeah, but they're like $70 or more. I've seen those before. Yeah. Those kind of brown wood grain looking ones. Yeah. yeah. Those are pricey. I don't understand why you spend so much on those because they do have a limited lifespan at the same time. You know, of course it is your head. If you got to spend $70 a year to protect your head, that's not too bad. So, Some people just like to be more stylish. True. I guess so. Yeah. 
Hey, let's talk in the last five minutes a little more about mining. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Um, what, uh, I mean, is there anything we haven't talked about, uh, about maybe working as an archaeologist on a historic mine site that people should keep an eye out for, or um, some recording methods, or anything that's just come into your brain that you want to mention to our archaeological audience? Yeah. Uh, in a nutshell, there's some good basic books that you can get. That's good. Um, so there are, like, introduction yeah. books to mining archaeology. Um, and there's, uh, let's see here, even if you look at the IMAX handbook, yeah. it's got a lot of basic archaeology, mining-related things with artifacts and with buildings and stuff. Um, so basically, just get one or two good introductory books and then... Mm -hmm. Think of mining, if you have to record mining, think of it as a landscape. Think of it as it's not just a tree in the forest. It's a whole forest. So the features on the landscape, you know, are basically trees. But you have most... This, <laughs> Makes total it, sense. That sounded cheesy. Anyways, <laughs> you've got, you know, it's a it's a network. A lot of mining, it's large scale. Yeah. Um, and it's interrelated and it's connected. And it's just human behavior. So if you think about what you would do if you went out and were a miner and lived next to mines, mm -hmm. like what kind of activity would you be doing? And then just kind of like apply that concept to trying to visualize what took place on the landscape when you record it. You know, Probably just playing a lot of Xbox like they do now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do see a lot of shot up bottles. There you go. Well, you that's see true. games. You see modified um, tin cans and things like that? Yeah. You see yeah. a lot of liquor bottles. You see a lot of liquor bottles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of the modified stuff, though, too, is just because that's... That's what they had. They had to reuse stuff. <laughs> and that's yeah. a good socioeconomic marker. I've seen more than a few... Um, or if you're log isolated. Cabin, log cabin syrup tins turned into, like, candle holders. Yep. The side cut out. Mm -hmm. Candle inside, yeah. Well, that's yeah, really I good. I can't think of any good books off the top oh, of my what? head, but... Really? I love all the Twitty books. Oh yeah, yeah. Twitty's got Re some rest to, rest riches. to riches. Yeah, that's we'll a have, good one. Yeah, we'll have links to that's this a little stuff bit in more in detailed and in depth. Um, well, and even if you don't read Rust to Riches, I was just telling somebody about this last week. Is um, if you're an archaeologist and you're going to work on a mine site, mm -hmm. one of the one of the most common things I think we record on an actual mining complex with like existing uh, at least platforms and structures and stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe not structures, but some of the remnants. Is the big concrete platforms with um, machine bolts, mounts? With, yeah, machine mounts. Yeah. With bolts coming up out. Yeah, Twitty's got an index that has measurements for all that stuff. Yep. I've I've recorded so I've many. I've used of those. that a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I, before I even knew that book existed, I've recorded so many of those. Where just as an archaeologist, you're trying to, you know, when I first started working on mine sites and recording these things, I had to go out there just basically as an observer because I knew nothing about what I was recording. I didn't I didn't know what they were called. Mm -hmm. I recorded a head frame the first time without knowing it was called a head frame, right? Uh, what did you know, call it? I don't know if I don't know what I called it. I don't even remember, but I know that I didn't call it the right thing. Who and, let you work out there? Know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did so, that even happen, Chris? <laughs> but the thing is, as an archaeologist, what you learn is is you just have to learn the power of description. And if you just take enough pictures and you describe everything that you can possibly mm -hmm. think of, because unless you're unless you're I was going to say the word again, unless you're uh, you have knowledge of what's going to happen after this. Maybe it's going to be destroyed. Maybe it's not. You have to assume that it, it's not going to exist after you see mm -hmm. it. You just, as a serum archaeologist, you have to do that. So um, now a mining complex, 
chances are they might try to avoid that. But um, if they don't, you have to describe everything as you see it as well as you possibly mm-hmm. can. So I've done that with those with those hoist with those mounting platforms, those motor mounts and and pump mounts and things like that, and said. Okay, you know how far is this sticking up off the off the thing? How big is the mm-hmm. block? How many are there? How, you know, if you can get into the threads and stuff like that, and get into the details. Yeah, it's all separate pieces of a puzzle. Right. Yeah. So if you record something in extreme detail, yeah, and then you have your resources on like mining history or mining archaeology, yeah, and if you look at the historical documents that you can get. And any overviews of whatever mining district that you're in, if you're in a mining district, mm-hmm. and just combine all of that together, then you can actually <laughs> recreate yeah. basically what happened at on mine sites for the most except, part. Except maybe that time you found the ice cream truck. Oh, the ice cream truck was fantastic. I know what ice cream truck you're talking about. <laughs> that one, yeah. Came up over the hill and was like, what the hell is that? I recorded it. You know, sometimes you find really interesting things in the desert. I once found a plastic head on a stake with a swastika on it. And I had to camp. I had to camp there. Nice. It was next to a mine that I was working at. So sometimes you're like, I don't know about this. Yeah. That's not good. A little too much time in the desert for those people. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what you're going to walk up upon. So come work in Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Who knows what you're going to find. All right. So. On that note, <laughs> on that note, I think we'll call it for this episode. Um, thanks, Jenny, for for joining us and telling us all about mining. Thank you for having me. Hope I helped and <laughs> brought something to the table. Hopefully, uh, if you have questions, as always, uh, you can send them to Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Uh, or go on the website and leave a comment or, or leave us some hate mail on the Facebook page when you saw this. Um, oh, gosh. Don't do that. I know. Go ahead. Jenny will be linked and so, be nice. and so will Richie, so you can leave them hate mail as well for the first time. So. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never come back then. No. I'll no. I'm scared. I know. All right. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, guys, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRM Podcast, or you can tag at ArcPodNet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology-related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. All right. Bye, everyone. Farewell. <laughs> <laughs>
www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.